in Romans chapter 12 today. If you'll take your copy of God's Word, uh, we will be looking at uh, the very next section, Romans 17 through 21, but I'm going to read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. So I want to want to remind you of verses 1 and 2 especially. So Romans chapter 12, we'll be looking at 17 through 21, but we'll be doing our reading here beginning in verse 1. And while you're turning there, I want to say uh, thank you for listening uh, to me the last couple weeks uh, and sharing in the Word of God. Uh, next week, uh, uh, Pastor Jeff should be back in the pulpit. So I just want to appreciate your patience uh, in listening to me the last several weeks. And in Romans 12, verse 1, Paul, as we've read previously, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith, that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So to be consistent with the genuine actions of love that we've seen previously described by Paul, the Christians in Rome must now swear off all forms of retaliation, both in practice and in the heart. That's Paul's purpose in these verses 17 through 21. The believer must assign himself when when evil actions are done to a believer, the believer must assign himself the role and actions for doing good. 
not only when evil actions are done to them, but in all situations. And in doing so, the Roman Christians will reserve a place for God's wrath on the evil actions done to them. Ultimately, they will show their faith by participating in the ultimate victory of good over evil. So in this manner, the Christians of Rome will engage in yet another way of that spiritual worship of God that we saw in verses 1 and 2. So the results for us when we leave worship today, we must change our way of thinking and our response to those who slight us, those who insult us, those who wrong us with evil actions. We must not repay evil for evil, and we must not seek revenge. Rather, our place is to seek to do good actions to those who wrong us and cling tightly in faith to Christ, who is the one who will repay if you're wrong, that's a high standard. That's a very tough thing we're going to look at doing today. So if you will come back to the text with me, let's look at in detail, beginning in verse 17. Paul is now transitioning from his discussion of general good acts in 9 through 16 that we're to do in the church, in the church society among believers. And now he says in verse 17... Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Remember, the actions we're to do in the church are actions that reflect a family love, a familial love, a love that occurs within a family, and that we're to have endurance in doing him, doing those things, not him, doing those actions. Now Paul is transitioning to our responses when evil occurs to us. Do you see that change there in the text? When evil actions are done to us, and Paul's going to begin with the lesser actions when we're slighted, when we experience an insult. Paul says what we're to do is to not repay evil for evil, but we are to, if you come back to 17 with me, give thought to do what is honorable or what is right or what is good in the sight of all men. You see, Paul returns to our thinking. He began this whole section by saying, don't be conformed to this age and how you are, were taught to think about the right way of doing things by your society, but be transformed by what? The renewal of the mind. And again, Paul returns to that idea of now when you're insulted, when you're slighted, when you feel like some evil has been directed to you, think about what's the right response. What is a good action, a good response in the sight of other people? We're prohibited from repaying with our own evil actions. And this is very consistent with everything we've seen so far in chapter 12. If you recall verse 9, we are to hate what is evil, we're to abhor what is evil, and we're to hold fast to what is good. So if we're going to hold on to what is good, if we're going to do good actions, then we must do them in all situations. If we're going to hate evil, then we can't turn to it when we feel like evil has been done to us. Even when our natural inclination, our first impulse, is to repay evil for evil, even when our society has trained us, that we should repay evil for evil. Remember that Paul has encouraged the believers in Rome not to be in conformity 
to their society around them. Remember, he's told them they're being conformed to the image of God's Son. They must do the work of being transformed by the renewal of their mind. The believers in Rome that Paul is writing to, they must begin to realize that their life in the church society means a very different response. Remember, Paul's writing to a mixed group. Some of them are pagan Romans. Some of them are Greeks. Some of them are Jews that are in Rome. All have been converted. They are believers now in Christ, and they've tried to form these churches. So we got to think about what would a Roman think if he's been insulted or slighted. And the Romans lived in what we call an honor culture, an honor culture, where slights and insults had to be addressed. You couldn't just pass over an insult that's made against you or that's made against your family. Do you remember the last couple of times we've looked at the importance of your family in Roman society. You did things to advance the cause of your family. Your significance was based on how significant your family was. So if someone insults you or insults your family, there had to be a response. You couldn't just let that go. Now it's interesting, in Roman society, they didn't often, they did not often resort to just outright violence. You think about in our country in the 1800s, if you were, if your honor was insulted, you might resort to a duel. You ever heard about that? That was, in fact, one of the reasons why we got gun control was there were so many duels and people were killing each other over slights to their honor. That wasn't exactly the case in Rome. What they would do is they would go to a temple and offer sacrifice to an idol in order to curse their enemies enemies that had injured them in some way. In other words, they enacted revenge, they repaid evil for evil by turning to the idols, uh, offering them sacrifices and trying to curse their enemies. So an offering, for example, given to an idol would be to destroy your enemy's business or to cause his wife to die or to cause his children to suffer some horrible disease and die. So do you see here that Revenge, seeking revenge among the Roman Christians would be a means to fall back into idol, idolatry, to pursue the type of religious actions they had pursued in the past. When, they, when evil had been done to them, repaying that evil, their, their initial reaction might be to go down the path of idolatry. Well, likewise, among the Jews of Rome, uh, who had converted the law of Moses had been twisted into a justification for seeking violent revenge. That was one of our readings in the gospel. Jesus quotes the law three times in the law. God requires justice of a like kind when an Israelite commits an offense against another Israelite. So for example, we know this summarized by this phrase, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that. So if an Israelite uh, assaulted another Israelite and knocked out his tooth, the people of Israel were to gather together and knock out the tooth of the offender, the one who committed the act. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't revenge in that sense. It was justice. Or if you harmed uh, uh, you know, another person and caused them to lose their eye, your eye as the offender was to be plucked out as justice, the like kind of justice. 
that was in the law given by Moses, but by the time of Christ, that had turned into a license for any insult against you could be turned into some kind of violent, evil action back to that person. So we read this, but if you keep your finger here in Romans and turn back to Matthew 5, again, because I want to remind you of this passage, Matthew 5, 38. You notice over the last few weeks, we've dipped back to this passage in Matthew 5 a couple times. Matthew 5, 38. You probably all have beaten me there. You have heard in verse 38 that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's that. And here Jesus is referring to those three passages in the Law of Moses. One's in Leviticus, one's in Exodus, one's in Deuteronomy. But Jesus says, I said, you do not resist the one who is evil. Now, Jesus is then overthrowing the law. Remember, the, the purpose of the law of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, the purpose of that law is justice in Israel, to be done by Israel, a like kind of justice. The Pharisees had turned it into a policy of personal revenge. Do you see the distinction there? There's a significant difference there. So Jesus is saying you can't turn the law of Moses into your own justification now for doing evil. What you should do is not resist the one who's doing evil to you, but in fact, he gives a list of actions you should do. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, and I don't, he's not talking about, you know, you see in cartoons where the guy takes his glove off and you know, initiates a duel with a slapping. But if someone strikes you and knocks out your tooth, you're not to then turn around and assault them back. You are to turn the other cheek. You're to endure more abuse. He goes on to give other examples there. This is in a time when Israel is under the domination of the Romans. They're not, in a, they're not allowed to follow the law in dispensing justice. So he broadens this out. We're not to seek personal revenge, and we're not to be passive or neutral, but we're to respond in Jesus' teaching to actions, evil actions done to us, by repaying with good actions to the person who's done evil actions to us. And now Paul is teaching that to the people in Rome. I hope you see Verse 17 is a direct teaching of Jesus that Paul has picked up and is now passing on to Romans. What are we to do instead? Come with me back to verse 18. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So what you should do, uh, as this audience that's receiving Paul's words, what they're to do is they're to produce actions that pursue a policy of peace with these uh, people who are sliding them, insulting them. And he, Paul points out the result may not be peace. He tells us that it may not be possible to get that result. As far as it depends on you, you're to engage in peaceful acts, but our enemies get a vote, and they may not choose a policy of peace when we respond with peaceful actions. We cannot be neutral. We can't be passive in this situation. Paul's not saying just receive the abuse. That would be a hard standard, wouldn't it? But he's saying you cannot act 
You cannot return with evil actions. You have to actually go on and produce good actions. The good actions that Christ has talked about, and among you Romans, you need to focus on actions that produce peace. Is that a high standard? I think that's a very high standard. I think this is a very difficult thing that we're being asked to do, that the Romans were being asked to do. But wait, it gets higher still. Look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He really begins, don't repay evil for evil. The construction there is the idea if you're slighted, if you're insulted. Now he goes on to vengeance. If evil actions, if harm has been done to you, do not go to revenge. Do not avenge yourself. So I would say this is even a higher standard beyond just repaying evil actions. You know, in, in a sense, there's a way you can do things that ultimately result in bad for a person, but aren't directly addressed to them. Now he's saying, don't go. If you have the opportunity, if something so evil has been done to you that you've got physical harm done to you, don't go back and get your vengeance on them. What you need to do is leave a place uh, leave it to the wrath of God is what the ESV says. And you might have a note there. Mine has a note where it says in the middle of verse 19, but leave it to the wrath of God. Yours may say something like uh, give place to the wrath of God or leave a place for the wrath of God. Paul means by this is our actions in response to evil done to us must not usurp or take over God's appointed role, he's appointed himself as the dispenser of justice. So when we seek revenge on someone, we steal from God a role that he's given only to himself. We usurp his role. We don't leave a place for the wrath of God if we take vengeance on ourselves. Now contrast this uh, to this passage, uh, to, or to this idea of what we've seen, what the Romans do. What they would innately do, their knee-jerk reaction to evil done to them would be to go to the temple and seek revenge, to give a place to a foreign god. Look at this other passage we read in our reading, Deuteronomy 32. If you want to hold your place in Romans 12 and come back to Deuteronomy 32. Uh, we read this this morning as well in our reading in the Old Testament. I really just wanted to get these passages in your mind. Notice that Paul's not innovating here. He's pulling on the teaching of Christ. He's pulling on the teaching of the Old Testament. But chapter uh, 32 of Deuteronomy in the Song of Moses, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He quotes this passage. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. God gives us this image here. Moses, as he's writing, gives us this image here of treasuries, of storehouses. We would say today, warehouses of revenge piled up for the enemies of the people of Israel. Just waiting for the time. They look really powerful now, and they're oppressing Israel, but waiting for the time when it's right to bring vengeance upon them, to repay them for the evil that they're doing, these foreigners are doing to Israel. Notice what he says, for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity, 
is that they're at hand and their doom comes swiftly. That's not a kind of a middling passage. Your doom, that's, there's finality there. God's going to open up his warehouse and unload it, his vengeance for oppressing his people. And notice how he contrasts that with these foreigners who worship foreign gods. God says, where are they? I'm at war with them now. I'm taking vengeance upon them. Where are they? Look at what he says in verse 37. Moses says, God will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, and ate the fat of their sacrifices and, the, and drank the wine of their drink offerings. In other words, these idols that these four nations went to for protection gave them sacrifices in exchange for results. Where are those results? Where are those idols? Israel, if you want to look at the difference between idolatry and the worship of the true and living God, God is a God who repays. The idols are weak and they do nothing. He says, let those idols rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. And he's mocking them, right? God is mocking the non-existent gods that the four nations have put their trust and faith in. So again, when we engage in revenge, we've now entered into this slippery slope of idolatry. We've taken what is God's place to take revenge, and when we put ourselves in that place, we might be on the road to some kind of pagan approach of taking revenge on someone. Notice that this is also an expression of faith. If we have faith in God, then we must trust that he will repay the evil done to us, as he's promised. He said in his word, I will repay. So if we usurp or take over God's role, we show that we're faithless. So if you take revenge, if evil actions are done to you, and you seek revenge for them, not only are you kind of brazenly taking over God's role, not only are you putting yourself in danger of pursuing idolatry, you're showing that you have no trust in what God has said. You're showing you don't believe that he will do what he said he's going to do. And lastly, if we take revenge, we must necessarily engage in evil actions. Now, I, don't, I don't say that to just, you know, kind of present a, an obvious statement, but think about what, what, the, what the implications of that are. Think about Romans 12.9 that we just looked at. If you take revenge, you're going to engage in evil acts, Right? But he says here in verse 9, hate what is evil. Are you going to do the things that you're to hate? John Calvin illuminates this even further. He tells us that, we, that when we try to take revenge, if we're successful, we'll only outdo the evil works that were done to us. You see that? If you do just a little bit of revenge... It's not going to be a very good revenge. If you want to engage in revenge, you've got to do more evil than the evil that was done to you. You outdo other people in doing evil. Well, that's certainly not hating evil. We say we're believers in Christ, we're followers in Christ, but now we're trying to outdo others in wicked and evil actions. Well, what are we to do instead of taking revenge? Come with me back to Romans 12, verse 20. To the contrary, right? He said, 
Don't take revenge. Leave a place for God to fulfill his role. And instead, or to the contrary, in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. The contrast here, the thing you're to do is not to be passive and do nothing. You are to go into good actions to your enemy, the one who's just done evil, the one who's just done harm to you. I told you this was going to be a much higher standard. Paul here is quoting Proverbs 25, verses 21 22. You can look that up later if you like. But it's the same kind of thing we looked at from Jesus in chapter 5 that we read. We are to return good actions for evil ones. If we don't want to usurp God's role in taking vengeance, we're not to take revenge ourselves, but we are, in fact, to do good to these evildoers, even to the point of what is feeding and giving to drink. It's nourishing someone, right? It's ultimately a very good action we're to engage in. Now, what does Paul mean by this metaphor of heaping burning coals on the head of our enemy? Is this a more noble form of revenge? We can kind of say, oh, you've done evil to me. I'm going to do some good to you to get back at you. I don't really think that fits the context of what Paul is saying here. And this is a very difficult metaphor. There's a lot of different views about it. But I don't think he's saying, you know, take revenge by doing good. I don't think that's consistent. Others suggest that uh, this was popular several years ago. I don't know if it is now, but others suggest that this is a form of helping your enemy, of nourishing your enemy, because in the ancient world, you know, people carried stuff in baskets on their head. And so the idea here is he doesn't have food, he doesn't have anything to drink, he doesn't have fire to warm himself. You can help him by giving him some coals, heap them up on his head to carry off. And create his own fire. But that doesn't, does that fit the context here either? I don't think it does. I really don't. There's a commentator named Douglas Moo who makes a suggestion. I find it very compelling. Many times in the Old Testament, the term fiery coals or burning coals are used of God's overwhelming power and majesty. That God is as powerful as this heap of burning coals. And a, think of a, a coal fire as a much hotter fire, for example, than a wood fire. Many times in the Old Testament, fire coals, burning coals are used of God's overwhelming power and majesty. And so what I think Paul is referring to here is that place for God's wrath that we saw just in the previous verse, right? Leave a place for God's wrath. If you don't take revenge, but instead you feed, you clothe your enemy, you turn the other cheek, you give them your cloak, you lend to them when they ask for, for money to be lent to them, you heap up kind of the potential of God's wrath on them. That's not a noble revenge, there's a subtle difference there. A noble revenge is me desiring evil to them. But if I'm doing good acts, and remember, what did Paul say in verse 9? Let love be genuine. Let your love be without hypocrisy. By doing these good acts to the one who's done evil to us, we're not keeping up revenge on them, but we are leaving a place for God's wrath, and that wrath begins to build up on them. Those fiery coals are the weight of God's wrath that could come down on them. 
But notice we're not taking revenge. And this is very important because God might take that person and make them your beloved brother. God might convert that person at some point. And then all this stuff that Paul has told us to do in the previous passages, to treat them with the love like we would love a family member, to endure in that love, we would have to do. And all that wrath of God that's been heaped up on them, it's now removed to Christ. It doesn't ever come back on them. God does not become faithless when he says, I will repay when he makes our enemy a believer. Folks, God does not, you may have heard it said that, you know, God just does away with our sin when we become a believer, but God punishes every sin. Every sin God punishes. He either punishes it in Christ, if you put your trust and faith in him, or he punishes it in you. If you go on to the judgment, obstinately resisting the gospel. Those fiery coals that are heaped up, that's why I call it a potential, they are a weight on the person who's done evil to you when you respond with love. And sometimes it's used to convert people. And again, God doesn't not take his vengeance but he loves us so much while we're his enemy that he takes that vengeance on his own son. What a gracious and loving God. What a gracious and loving God. So Paul said previously we should bless those who persecute us and not curse them. Here, when they do evil acts to us, we should do good to them. We should do good to them. We should pray for them, but we should also do good actions to them. We should hope that Christ will make them our friend, that all that wrath, that he'll take it on. But ultimately, if they are never converted, God's word will be true on them. They will endure that horrible judgment, that heavy weight that is due to their sin, including those evil actions done to you. Folks, some of you today may have done evil actions to a believer Maybe before you were a believer, maybe in error, when you, were a, when you were a Christian, and were responded to in love. And you might have felt that heavy weight of coals building up on you. Praise the Lord that he uses even those things, the threat of his wrath, to bring us to faith. Well, ultimately, look at verse 21. Paul summarizes this whole section, really all of chapter 12, by exhorting us to choose... What is good? Do not be overcome by evil. Do not use evil to fight evil, but to come overcome evil with good. The only way you succeed in revenge, again, is to outdo the evil of the one who's wronged you. But you'll never get any victory there. The only victory you will get, believers must prevail by good actions, actions that are prompted by the Spirit of God. In other words, this is a thing that's impossible for us to do without the prompting of God, without the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is something that's impossible for us to do if the Holy Spirit doesn't empower us to do it. 
we're not, Paul's not talking about some naive or passive reaction to evil done to you. I've been trying to think of a good illustration, and I can't think of a very good one. But, but I, I can tell you a funny story about my wife. She is not, she does not like confrontation. Okay, and one time she's at the grocery store shopping and someone rams into her with her cart. And not only does she not take revenge, she just keeps shopping. Okay, and so this person runs into her again. And what does she do? She keeps shopping. And finally, it's her dad who runs into her in the store and he's teasing her. He finally says, Rachel, you know, she's not willing even to confront him. Now, this is where my illustration is not very good, right? Because that is a very passive way. You know, someone bumped into me uh, with their cart at the store. I'd be like, right? She's being passive there. And I'm, I'm not trying to embarrass my wife by that analogy. Paul's not telling us to be passive. He's not telling us to be naive. He's telling us to renew our minds to think about evil's been done to me what should i do i should do good i should not be passive thank you for enduring that awful illustration so what is this what does it matter here what is paul saying really for us to do what do i do with this well those in rome we've said must turn away from rushing off to an idol to get revenge or rushing rushing off to some physical violence but again, this is another aspect of the work of renewing our mind. Remember chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is another way that we can do this by doing these good works. If you want to know, how do I worship God rightly? How do I make an offering of myself to him? How do I do my spiritual worship? This is another example. We don't take revenge, but we stop, we think, what should I do? And then we do good actions to that person who's done evil to us. Remember, if we do acts of revenge, we necessarily do acts of evil. We begin to go away from the spiritual acts we've seen in the previous chapter. Those love, those actions of familial love, if we're insulted in the church, if another believer who is in sin does evil to us, if we respond with revenge, if we respond by repaying evil, we're going in the wrong direction. We're not doing the actions of family love. We're not enduring, but we're turning back on our path and we're going back to evil. And again, we take away the justice of God, that metaphor of the coals of our enemies being heaped up on their head, those fiery coals. That doesn't happen if you are passive any more than it happens if you take revenge. To heap up that potential wrath to its fullest, you have to do these good works. You have to do these good actions to the person seeking revenge or uh, the person who you might otherwise seek revenge against. So it's implied here that the heaping up doesn't occur, that there's a lesser judgment for evil, evil actions that we respond in our own power against. God's not going to repay to the fullest 
that he could to that person. If we shove him out of the way and take the place for his wrath. So rather, we ought to show our faith in God by leaving justice to him. So if you're a believer here, as I conclude, Paul wants us to recognize, to see these opportunities where evil is done to us and to think about what our response should be. When we recognize these situations, we must do the work of sanctification and the work of renewing our mind, not being conformed to this age, but being conformed to the image of the Son of God. In this case, we ought to respond with good actions. What are they? They're actions of love. They're all the actions we've seen in the previous section. They're actions you can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, for example. You can see there in Matthew 5 as well in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives us good actions that we can pursue. We must do this when we are slighted, when we are insulted. We must do this when we're actually harmed, physically harmed, materially harmed. We must do this when we are responding to what other believers have done in error to us. We sometimes misunderstand what other people are doing, and we assume it's evil. Here, we must respond in good. And of course, finally, when we are in persecution, when we are suffering that horrible material harm from unbelievers, we must show faith in God that he's going to execute justice in them and that we cling to our role of loving what is, what is good, of doing good actions. Now, if you're an unbeliever, when you persecute God's own people, Recognize that you're heaping up this judgment upon you. It's like fiery coals. This heavy weight of God's wrath is being heaped up on you. What's worse, as an unbeliever, we know that you are in bondage to your sin. We, we preach that often here because it's what the Bible teaches. You cannot do what Paul is exhorting and encouraging the believers in Rome to do, what he's encouraging us to do. You can only continue this cycle of doing evil, having evil done to you, receiving someone else's revenge done to you, chasing revenge yourself, heaping up more judgment, continuing this cycle. If what Paul is saying today begins to appeal to you, the first thing you must do is humble yourself, and you must receive the mercy given in Christ. You must put your trust and faith in Christ. If you're beginning to feel that heavy weight of judgment upon you, your only hope is to put your full allegiance in Christ. Only he can deliver you from this cycle of revenge, and only he can bear the penalty of sin for you. God's not going to ignore it. You can't put it down. You're either going to bear the penalty for your sins yourself, or Christ is going to bear them because you have received his mercy and you have repented of your sins and turned in love to him. So our main purpose is, uh, Paul, to be consistent with the genuine love actions described in the previous part of this chapter, Paul is now telling us to swear off repaying evil for evil, all forms of retaliation, both in the heart and in practice. We must assign ourselves the role of doing good actions in all situations, in those situations in the church, among other believers, but even when we are wronged. 
We must not take the place of God's wrath. We must leave a place for it for those who've done evil to us. And ultimately, we must show our faith by participating in the ultimate victory of God's goodness. Our participation is doing those good acts. It's only in this manner will we engage in our spiritual worship. You remember that. What we owe God, because of all we've seen in Romans, is our spiritual worship, our reasonable service. So when you leave worship today, you must begin to change your way of thinking and your response to those who slight you, who do evil to you, who insult you, who do evil harm to you. You must not repay evil for evil. You must not seek revenge. So what will you do today to begin to treat those who insult you, who do harm to you, who wrong you, in the manner Paul has instructed us to do? It starts with thinking. All the way back here, in verse 17, he says, Give thought to what is honorable, what are good actions in the sight of all men. So when you, what are you going to do today when someone insults you? The next time someone wrongs you, how are you going to begin to think about what's the right response? Paul's given us these instructions. Christ has given us these instructions. And so that's what we are commended to think about and to put into practice. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is... Uh, of several difficult things that Paul has encouraged us to do, this may be the hardest. How can we do these things? Well, we know we can only do it if you help us. If you give of your spirit liberally to us, if you lead us, if you short-circuit the sin in our life, the innate reactions that we have when someone does wrong to us, Lord, we pray, help us to bear up under persecution and evil done by unbelievers. Help us to see when we're doing evil to our beloved brothers in the church. Help us to have grace and mercy to those we think might be insulting us and recognize that sometimes we can misunderstand what's going on. But ultimately, Lord, help us with these actions in response to evil done to us. This is so hard. We would be lost. We would be back on that road to outdoing evil seeking revenge in idols if you don't aid us. So we call on you, Lord, the God of mercy, the God whose love and compassion exceeds his revenge. We call on you as the God who will take revenge, who will do justice, who aid us to watch over us, to protect us, give us the strength to do what we see Paul and Christ commanding us to do. Forgive us when we fall well short of it. Bear with us, walk with us, pour out your spirit on us, and bring us ultimately into that heavenly place. I pray that you'll do all these things in our church and in our county. We pray that you will bring others who hunger and thirst for the word and give us the strength to fill up their desire for you. Let us cling to the preaching and teaching of your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.